Hi, everyone. It's Raghu, and I'm back with Ramdas here and now, another episode. And this is actually the second part of the Q&A that we started uh, last Ramdas podcast. So this is part two. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to do what I normally do, which is talk a little bit about what hit me when I listened to the to the talk by Ram Das and share that. Uh, I also, right now, though, want to uh, just remind folks about BetterHelp, this wonderful uh, sponsor that we have, and it's allowing us to be able to do everything we need to do to bring this to people free of charge, of course. And uh, I'm listening to this podcast, and one of the questions that came up was around the environment, our attachment to the earth, basic attachment. Just look out your window and see a bird, as I'm doing right now. A number of birds in a tree and looking for food and eating from the feeder. You immediately have this sense of connection. And so the question was around the fear of loss of what we are losing with what's going on ecologically. And Ram Dass talked about uh, an Australian uh, ecologist that uh, was very pessimistic about how far we've gone and how profoundly we have uh, disturbed the balance. And Ram Dass was talking about, well, we can work with that. That is something we can work with. And there's nobody that knows definitively anything about this is the end. First of all, this man, by the way, his name is John Seed. I don't know if he's still around, but he said, well, the earth is not going anywhere. It's us that may not be hanging here. All of it, which to the point produces a tremendous amount of anxiety with all of us. And... um, so it's just one more uh, in the uh, what Sharon uh, Salzberg calls one more effect of the piling on that seems to be happening these days with COVID and the political divide and the social economic divide and racial injustice. And I mean, there's piling on going on, that's for sure. And be great to be able to talk to somebody. And that's why I'm bringing up this particular question, which is so relevant to us today. This this talk was done in the 90s, I think. And, uh, well, this has been going on a long time. Better help. They really have people online, by phone, who can help with the whole gamut of what, each one of us is dealing with something or other, and they uh, they really have a host of therapists that fit what might help you, better help. So this just triggered in me uh, the reality of how much that piece of it, the environment and what's happening to it, and us seeing that with our eyes through, through the net or, or television or whatever, or right in person mostly, and how disturbing that is, and how hard it is to find uh, 
therapists uh, in in the town or city you might be in. I mean, I'm I'm hearing tremendous lack of therapists in reports through the news and so on. So BetterHelp, go to betterhelp.com and try putting in slash Ramdas. I think you'll still get a, a discount off off of the uh, normal pr- price, and it's completely reasonable. So there is that one other thing that I came across that I really want to share that's not in this talk from Ramdas, but it is in this wonderful book that came out. Uh, here it is. This is for you guys who are uh, happening to be looking at YouTube. It's the Ramdas Words of Wisdom book. And it's got it's sectioned off by themes, and it's got incredible quotes. You can just open the book and then have your whole day be set by virtue of just absorbing these words. So I just happened to be looking through it. I just picked it up and did what anybody would be doing. I just flipped through it. And I came to something, because I had been reading um, something around from the Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, all around compassion and so on, and him absolutely being clear that the compassion includes oneself. Anyhow, so I was flipping through this Ram Dass book, and then I came to this, just one quote, simple, just a few words. I myself stand in the need of the arms of my own kindness. I myself stand in the need. I stand in need of the arms of my own kindness. God, that just said it all to me. I was so taken by this, how simple it is, but how true it is, and how much we absolutely ignore ourselves in the equation. So, uh, that book, by the way, is available at uh, ramdas.org slash shop, I believe. And, uh, of course, uh, there's a whole array of lovely, uh, lovely items, including all of Ramdas's books. So this uh, podcast, again, is part two of the Q&A that we started last time. Uh, we presented the Ramdas podcast, and uh, it's uh, oh, always Ramdas is so darn entertaining, isn't he? He's talking. Somebody asked him about Alan Watts. You know, like they were not happy about the fact that Alan may be drunk every time he gave a talk. At one point, uh, is what they said. I don't know that. I never saw Alan in person. Um, so interesting thing because this comes up a lot and again as he said well alan could have just been drunk and there was no other you know we're not talking about crazy wisdom because he brought that up relative to trumpa rinpoche who's the most famous example of someone giving talks completely you know drunk on sake or vodka whatever it was um and ram does talk about there are beings who can be on on one plane, they are drunk. On another plane, they are not drunk. And what comes out of them is the superb wisdom, which was drunk, because I did experience that. But he went and he asked, this is, and I'm giving it all away. I'm so sorry, I can't help myself. 
But he went and he asked Kalu Rinpoche, the great, great Tibetan Lama, and he told him the whole story. And anyhow, Kalu just said, uh, yeah, when you follow a bird up to the top of a mountain and it takes off, do you, do you? No, you can't. But anyhow, that gets into very subjective reality about the state of consciousness of another being, which very difficult. What else does he talk about here? Uh, the question about discipline. I'm no good at that. Well, none of us are good at that. Uh, it's a matter of... Uh, it's a, you know, I said to some a friend, Duncan, you guys know Duncan Trussell. We were just talking the other day, and I just said, uh, you know, it's, it's just a matter of creating a habitual pattern that maybe is a little bit more constructive than some of the other ones. And so for me, I, I got it to the point where I'm not questioning sitting every morning, you know. And yeah, just create another habitual pattern that's a little bit more... Uh, transforming, shall we say. Um, ultimately, your life is your practice. Hey, that's a Gandhi. It uh, comes from a Gandhi quote, I believe. Um, uh, <laughs> I like the thing, if you're looking for a guru, right, normally we all say, you cannot look for a guru, the guru comes to you, looks for you. And uh, in, in this case, Ramda said, well, if you're looking for a guru, it's a great sign because it's more of, you know, ultimately all of our, everything that happens in our life is our practice. And this is just an ind another indication of that. So enjoy. <laughs> all right, some other questions. Can pot be used spiritually? That's a big question for a lot of people. And, how about the witness, most important mindfulness uh, exercise that we can uh, use, working with pain, abuse, addiction. He's got all of the biggies in here in the second part of this uh, Q&A. Um, and somebody talked about, I guess, about dying. And so... Here's another thing for better health. If the anxiety, to speak to someone about the anxiety of ceasing to exist as a separate entity, and that dying is ego dying, which many of us have experienced for sure using a psychedelic, uh, there's the anxiety of ceasing to exist as a separate entity. That is, of course, at the bottom of everything on a day-to-day -day basis that is happening to us that produces this anxiety. Um, and so the, the quote here from him is uh, from the Buddha. So where there is anxiety, it's rooted in the ignorance of identification with your somebodyness. Remember that Becoming Nobody movie that came out a couple of years ago with Ram Dass? It's all about that. So, yeah. That's my favorite thing in this whole podcast. Anxiety is rooted in the ignorance of identification with your somebodyness. I'm sure Buddha must said it a little differently, but 
It's right on. So here you go. Don't forget about Words of Wisdom book. It's got such great things in it. Don't forget about betterhelp.com because they can help. And um, what else is there? There's a great Gita course coming up. Make sure you're on ramdas.org email list, okay? Because we're going to announce it real soon. Uh, this fantastic uh, Gita course that comes from Naropa, 1974, the famous talks that Ramdas gave uh, on the Bhagavad Gita. And this, what we did was take it, because Ramdas is so ever, always practical, and we knocked this down into, we didn't knock it down, we delved into it and got the most practical advice that the Gita represents to us on a day-to-day basis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This is Ramdas here and now on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and enjoy all the multitude of phenomenal teachers and thought leaders. You can go to the Mind Rolling Podcast, which I do, which has Jack Cornfield and my son Noah asking him questions again completely practical and useful. I will see you next time with Ramdas here and now. That's a really interesting question. He's asking about um, that he went to a workshop with Alan Watts and every night Alan got drunk and he couldn't quite get together the fact that Alan was so wise during the day and so drunk and paranoid and everything at night. And that's, uh, there are two levels of answering that question which are fun. One is that Alan was, um, Alan knew how it all was, but he wasn't how it all was. He was living in the hell realm of being so close to Buddha, but not being a Buddha because he was a journalist. He was a journalist of Buddhism. So that his separation, it's like the separation between the lover and the beloved is so close, but it's still a separation that it's a hell realm. And he kept drinking to avoid the pain of that. And that's what part of, because Alan got the DTs, he got, I mean, I remember once Alan was doing the tea ceremony for me and he was so out there from drinking that he couldn't get the whisk to be quiet in the cup. It was like shaking and I said, Alan, this is absurd. I mean, he's supposed to be doing a peaceful thing to bring me into peace and he's got me a nervous wreck through doing this tea ceremony. So now... The other level of it, though, uh, and it's more clearly demonstrated with somebody like Trungpa Rinpoche, who was also a drunk a lot of the time, was uh, what's called Tantra Yoga, which is somebody who is drunk and not drunk at the same moment, in which they can be a drunk out of your karma, not theirs. And that's a very interesting one. That's really scary to play with and even scary to think about. And I wouldn't write off Alan Watts as being a tantric. I'd write him off as being a drunk. And I'd say, poor Alan got caught. That may be the limitation of my perception, all right? Because with Trungpa, I wouldn't do that so easily. I was very disturbed about his drinking at one point, and I went to Kalu Rinpoche, who was a beautiful old lama who fit into the model of good lamas, you know? And there was... Trunkpa, who was always meeting me with his bottle of vodka and, you know, this kind of sloshing around. And I said, tell me about 
Trungpa Kalu. And Kalu looked at me and he said, when you go to the top of the mountain with a bird and the bird flies, don't think you can. Now you do with that what you want. I mean, what I saw was there was a mystery there. And I was willing to say open to the fact is, I don't really think this guy should be getting drunk all the time. And the other part of me says, I don't know. Am I dealing with your question? Yeah. Yes. Okay. She, her thing is great. She's saying, I don't have a discipline and I'm really bugged with myself for not having a discipline. She said, I listen to your tapes and I do all those kind of things, but I don't have a discipline. And do I make any progress or what happens? Right? And what that whole statement is a statement of a discipline. She isn't a practice. That's who she's busy being in relation to God. She's busy being somebody that doesn't have a practice. That's her practice at the moment. I mean, you really got to flip it out one level to, to see the beauty of the whole thing. I mean, if you listen to my tapes every day in traffic, you will become as neurotic as I am. <laughs> That's all I can guarantee. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, life is your practice. And all of these, do I have a, am I a meditator or am I a this? They're all exquisite things when you're drawn to them and when they're right for you. But there's nobody stopped. If you're awake to the fact you even need a practice, you're in a practice. I mean, people say, will I never find my guru? I've been looking for my guru for years. The looking for the guru is the practice. By the time you find it, you probably won't need it. You'll slay the Buddha when you meet it. Uh, can pot be used spiritually? And is, uh, does abstinence help? I don't think there's a rule book about it. There are people that use grass as a spiritual practice. And there are people who feel that it closes them down in certain ways and the after effects and the come downs and the refractory periods don't allow their body to be sensitive enough and pure enough to receive to, and that, I mean, there are ways in one, which one uses pot as a defense mechanism because one can't accept one's own beauty and so one feels one has to do something to become enough for the moment. And facing that not enoughness is an interesting practice of abstinence after a lot of use of grass. On the other hand, uh, there are many, many people in the spiritual path in the East who use grass as a vehicle, especially when your path is devotional. It often allows you to get out of your own paranoia and get into spaces of expansive melting things. And it's a, just a yoga, it's just another yoga. It has certain drawbacks because as a yoga, it's illegal in this culture. So that a lot of energy has to be put into the paranoia that goes with it, you know? And the way you get it and the cost of it and the whole game. And sometimes it's like if I said, well, you can meditate, we're gonna meditate tomorrow, like the way the Jews did it in Germany, we're gonna have a, a, we're gonna have a, a Passover ceremony in so-and-so's basement but, you know, if we get caught, we're all going to get murdered. But we're going to have this thing. And that's the same thing. See, I mean, you're, you're playing with that other energy. And if you can stay so free that you can go to it and, and be with God, great. But often it gets, you get so fascinated with the mechanics of the game because they're, 
they're scary and they're exciting and they're so dramatic, you know, you lose it. So there's a tricky thing in using illegal strategies. <laughs> Is that dealing with the question? Yeah. Yeah. About the what? Witness. The witness, yeah. A practice is to cultivate a part of the mind that observes another part of the mind. Okay? And that is called The Witness. It's spelled out very exquisitely in Uspensky's book, In Search of the Miraculous. So that I can be driving and I'm caught in my drivingness and then The Witness says, caught in your drivingness, eh? And then I've just used a part of my mind to see another part of my mind and it loosens the hold of my identification with the driver. Is that okay, everybody with that? Now, that's a stage, and you cultivate that, but the game isn't to end up the witness. As you, that witness gets more and more powerful, at first you're witnessing about 1% of the time, and 99% you're completely sucked into the trip. And then slowly, that little witness, like somebody will say, here's an example of the witness presence. This is a bizarre example. Back in the 60s, when I lived at Millbrook, people used to call in the middle of the night on bad trips to get talked down. And um, so one night, in the middle of the night, a woman called, I was in, May, in, in New York, and a woman called from Los Angeles to tell me that she had gone insane and um, she was gonna kill herself. So I woke out of a deep sleep and I heard her telling me this. I said, where are you calling from? She said, Los Angeles. I said, would you ask the person that dialed seven digits plus an area code to get on the phone because you're obviously mad, see? see? Because there was a part of her that was perfectly there. I mean, that's complicated to stuff to do. It's like saying, would you find the other part of your mind and let me talk to it, because you're a nut. <laughs> and in a way, that's part of the process of cultivating that part of yourself, so that when somebody calls up and they're in their trip really thick, like I say to somebody, they come in, they say, I'm depressed. I say, are you completely depressed? <laughs> yes absolutely, totally depressed. Yes. Is there any part of you that isn't depressed? No. Is the part of you that, is, that you and I is talking that is noticing the depression, is that depressed? Well, no, that's just noticing. Aha. Sometimes that noticer is the tiniest little thread and 99.9% .9 is depressed. And you've only got that little thread and the witness technique keeps cultivating that thread and making the thread into a string, the string into a rope, 
into stronger and stronger until you're sitting in the witness all the time and things keep coming up and you notice them and then they change and you notice them and you're witnessing. However, that's still keeping you in dualism, separate. There's a witnesser and what you're seeing. So the next step, and this is the, the mystical step and the tricky one, is where the witness witnesses itself. And then you go through into non-dualism. And you end the witness. And then you're part of everything and you're not part of everything. And that's too hard to talk about. Uh, she says, what's real? If you die and you go to another plane where you get renewed and then come back, was that real and this isn't? Or is that what you're asking? Yeah. The answer is none of them are real. They're all relatively real. No form is real. It's all relatively real. The only thing that's real is the formless, if you will, out of which it all comes. The minute it comes into form, it's all the result of projection and selection and da, 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 da. And that's what's called relatively real. It both is and it isn't real. So that the answer is all astral planes, all heavens, hells, all of that stuff is still all relativity. It's all relatively real. And the only thing that's real, it's like truth has no form. The minute you put it into words, it becomes a lie because there are conditions under which it isn't. So those aren't even more real than one another. They're just different. They're just different. Do we learn from this lifetime or do we keep asking that? No, we learn from this lifetime. That's why it's a curriculum, as Emmanuel said. Even the statement, I'm not learning anything this lifetime, that's what you're learning. And we'll wait. See, there's no rush. You know, you can go through, I mean, you watch and you can see a whole set of lifetimes. I didn't, I'm not learning anything this time. I'm not learning this, anything this time either. Next lifetime, I'm not learning anything still. You know, and then that all is preparation from far out. I never learn anything. I'm depressed. I think this life I'll commit suicide because I'm not learning anything. Finally, maybe out of that will come. Maybe I'm standing in the wrong place. You know, because it's a stance. I'm not learning anything. Just a flip of the mind. And it's wow, God. I mean, I remember hanging out with Aldous Huxley and. He was so, wow. I mean, it was all like Christ saying, look, I'm making all things new. I mean, everything he'd look at, he extraordinary, extraordinary. Well, it was fun walking around the streets with all this. He could barely see. Extraordinary. extraordinary. Yes. She's talking about witnessing the clingings and how often do you have to witness them to give them up? It depends on how strong they are. I mean, if you, uh, if you, you know, you like you're meditating and you're focusing on the breath and you begin to feel a pain in your knee. Now, sometimes you can notice the pain in the knee, and the minute you notice that you, your power of concentration is strong enough to bring it back to the breath, and the knee disappears. At other times, the pain in the knee is so persistent. You have to change your focus of awareness and work with the pain rather than with the breath because that was too powerful. Too powerful means how concentrated you are or how rooted you are in other planes where that stuff isn't because that same pain for somebody else who's more deeply rooted in their being 
and has less attachment to the pain doesn't have any effect. I mean, I've sat in meditation where you sit down and meditate and you start to fidget, you know, because you're not comfortable and your knee isn't and your back isn't and you're, you know, you're, you know that feeling? And, but in India, I sat with um, Goenka for a long time and uh, after about six days of a 10-day meditation, Goenka would say, tonight we will sit a vow meditation. We will take a vow that for 50 minutes we will not move. You cannot move anything, right, intentionally. So you all take the vow, I vow, you know, you do it in some foreign language so you think it's like real. And I, mean, I think vows are a hype anyway. But at any rate, I took a vow and so you sit there and you get all comfortable because you know it's going to be 50 minutes, you know, and you... And then the bell rings, and you're, you're like, even before the bell stops, you're trying to make sure it's absolutely right. See, and then you get in, and there's a pain. See? And there's nothing you can do. And you go through, oh my God, if I don't take care of this pain, I'm going to be crippled. I mean, this is an important pain. And then you realize that for 50 minutes, if you didn't move, you probably won't die. You know, the likelihood is you won't, and you look at it, and it's a pain. And it's interesting, the minute you start to do that, often the pain just disappears, because you relax around it. Because what happens is the minute you feel a pain, there's a whole part of your body that resists around it and pushes against it, because you're trying to get rid of it. The minute you realize you can't do anything about it anyway, there's a The minute there's a ha, the resistance, which is the cause of a lot of the pain, uh, starts to release. So uh, I was sitting there, and then my great image is I hear a mosquito coming towards me. <laughs> and there's about 200 people in the room. And me, big compassionate being that I am, I'm just hoping it lands on someone else. I mean, it's just like... <laughs> but no, but no, see, it, it finds its way right to my impure karma, you know. And it lands on my cheek, and I can feel it looking for a place, you know, that's particularly tasty. And then I feel the nails going in, you know, and I feel the, its body getting heavier with my blood. And then I feel it stagger as it goes to take off because it's gotten its absolute fill. And then I feel a chemical start to work its way, and the itching start, and I'm, you know, like this. And... It goes through its process, and then the itching goes, and finally it subsides, and it's quieting down, and I'm just getting come on, I hear <laughs> And it's great because you get so, oh, and you get so that you can sit there, just watch this stuff all go down that you've always been reacting to all the time, and you begin to see a lot about your mind. It's, it's quite a beautiful thing. Would you please comment on the existence of satanic cults? I was abused by such a cult when I was growing up, and I'd like to know how to heal on the spiritual level. When I meditate and get very high, sometimes at that time, images from the abuse intrude. It feels like this abuse has affected me on this deep spiritual level. Any ideas? There are very powerful traumas people have that imprint, they get imprinted very deeply around those traumas. And the traumas happen at such a deep level of your psyche 
that every time you approach going deeper and deeper, you come to that deep level of psyche and that thing happens. I mean, that happens not just cult, satanic cult abuse, but a lot of family dynamics that most of us have come through. There are places that, that get awakened that are very deep, that are very defended against in our personality structures. And finally, um, uh, the art form is to cultivate the qualities of mind and heart that allow you finally to just look at what it is and stay open to it and ex experience the memories, the feelings, the whole thing, and in a way, go bring it up to date. See, the, what happened was when the thing first happened, you were so busy being the person abused that you locked into that reality at that plane. But now as your consciousness gets freer of your identity with stuff, you want to take your past and bring it up to the present. And you'll get strong enough so that you can go right back into that abuse. And in a funny sense, relive it, but not relive it as the abused person anymore. Bring it into the place where here we are in this and you absorb it. It's like what you do with pain. When you push against pain, you exacerbate and keep the pain locked in. When you embrace pain and start to soften and work from inside of it, it all changes. So a lot of the way you deal with that which frightens you, that's behind you, those steps that are walking in the dark behind you, is you turn around and you say, hello. And you're just with it. And you keep cultivating the quietness. And at first, some of them are so strong, you can't handle them at that moment. And there's nothing wrong with saying, these forces are too powerful for me to deal with now. I'll come back another day. But you could spend your whole time being somebody, being somebody who was abused by a cult, trying to get over it. That's a stance. It's a definition of yourself. It would be better not to worry about the content, just cultivate the mind states that have no clinging to any definition of self. It's the same thing with any addiction program. It's very easy to get into the family surrogate status of being a fellow addict. It's another thing to find the place in the mind where the identification with the addiction is and get free of that and then honor it if you have a physiological problem. It's like having diabetes or something like that and you treat it appropriately. But you're not defining yourself in those terms. Is that all right for whoever asked the question? Yeah. Um, she said she has a hard time with animal suffering. Um, and I mean, it's, it's both a beautiful quality in you and a trap of mind. I mean, obviously you have a lot of empathy with people that are helpless, with things that are helpless and you want to help them because you have a feeling of helplessness that you understand and you empathize with that feeling. And that's human and that's really part of our beauty as humans. At the same moment, there's a place where you stand back where you see that the animal's the animal and it's in that situation and that's what's happening. And there's a place in you which is quiet about it all as well when you cultivate it. Like I was given a, a place at Big Sur many years ago when I was, I was going to teach at Esalen and they gave me a ranch to cool out at. And on the ranch came with a cat. And the cat was great and I love cats and we became real good buddies. 
And um, one morning she went out and she got a lizard while I was meditating. And she brought the lizard in and sat down right between my legs to eat the lizard while I was meditating. And I'm sitting there being with God. And here is this lizard with its tail flapping and it's squeaking. And this cat whom I love is eating it and killing it. And, and I sat there wondering, now, do I take the lizard away from the cat? Do I hate the cat? Because the cat's eating the lizard. The cat's just doing cat stuff, you know? And the bizarre analogy is humans are just doing human stuff. That's the hard one to see, you know? That what our minds, which we elevate to being such a big deal, are still part of our animal nature. And we're just animals playing a game with our minds in the animal world. And you, as you get quieter, hear what part you can play in smoothing the whole thing out and doing what you can do. But if you get destroyed by it, that's because the balance was lost inside yourself. Just as if you get so cold you don't care about the animals, the balance was lost. So you gotta, you got to walk the fine line. You can't go either way. Yeah. Addictions, she says, are ways of keeping from being the present. Well, they are and they aren't. They're also yearnings to come to God. They're the way one comes to God. It's far out. I mean, you take somebody that is addicted to power. They get the power, and at the moment they get it, they feel that same feeling of, oh, they feel at home, they feel loving, they feel present, they feel everything. A moment later, they're hungry again. They're like hungry ghosts. But at that moment, they feel it. A lot of people buy a new car. I mean, find a bargain at the shop, flea market. Just as drinking, there's moments when you feel the release from the separateness. You come into the unity. It only lasts a moment, though, with most addictions, and then it's gone. So, yeah, I'll, one second, I'll be right with you. Which, one second, yeah. And um, so, um, now the negative side of addiction is that it's avoiding the pain and the suffering that's inherent in the moment. And it says, this is too much for me, and so it pushes it away. So there is both in the addiction a psychological component, which is aversion, and there is also a spiritual yearning in it that are both in them. So to say it's just one is missing the point of it. It's got all of it. The only thing is it's not, it's not a really good method because a moment later, you're back again. It doesn't have a good transfer or a good generative stabilizing quality in it. It's the same thing as when I used acid for a long time. I'd go up and I kept coming down and going up and coming down. And the question was, I wasn't taking acid to avoid life. I was taking acid in order to remember the fullness of my being. I was doing fine in life. That wasn't the issue. And, but I then saw that I couldn't stabilize it. And as a method, it wasn't, I didn't know that somebody else couldn't, I just knew I couldn't. So as a method, it wasn't useful to me. Right? Now that functional ability to shift was because I wasn't addicted to it. In the words that I hadn't closed down to saying that's the only method. And the question, when you really bring, like the 11th step in the AA program or the 12-step program has in it a spiritual dimension. 
And that is the one of cultivating the other part of awareness that isn't addicted. And that's beautiful if you then can let go of the definition of yourself as an addict. And that's a problem with those systems because in the systems you've joined a family surrogate and you bond with everybody around your addiction. And so when you let go of that definition, you let go, it's like you're bonded with all the bowling team and then you don't bowl anymore. You're no longer a bowler, you know, and you can never not be a bowler and be part of the bowling team, you know. I mean, it's, it's delicate at best, delicate at best. Sir. Finally, you're right. He's, his, he said, in effect, that he's done a lot of work. He's doing pretty well with himself, but he's still got a lot of neurotic stuff left over from childhood that seems to be holding. And what I was saying before is, after a while, your neuroses become your style. You know, it's, you're just somebody that has that stuff. And your identification with it becomes less and less powerful because you're much more, you become so much more than that that it's still around, like your orange shirt, you know, but your apricot shirt, but it's not gonna, you're not busy being somebody with an apricot shirt, but you're wearing it. And it's that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm not gonna grow hair no matter how high I get, probably. I probably, if I got high enough, I could, but then I'd understand why I was bald and I wouldn't, so. <laughs> but in other words, you end up, there is style. You look at all the great saints, they're all neurotic as hell. I mean, they all had weirdities, they all had stuff. And, but they weren't busy being stuffy. So, in a way, the, as the richness of the moment comes, it's so rich, you, you just can't spend much energy holding on to a storyline, you know? It's just not very interesting. What practices uh, for dealing with the anxiety of being in the void? That's the anxiety of ceasing to exist as a separate entity. And that anxiety is rooted in what Buddha would call the ignorance of identification with your somebodyness. So that the techniques of meditation in which you come up to the edge where you start to, it's like the question Ramana Maharshi asked in Vichara Atma, the method of who am I? Which you keep asking who am I? And you keep saying neti neti, not that, not that, not that, not that, not that. Uh, you can come and you can play at the edge of the void. One strategy is to play at the edge of the void and feel the fear and sit with the fear and examine the fear and be the fear and just stay right at the edge. Don't try to beat through the fear. Allow it. Say, yes, this fear is inherent in my separateness. And instead of the fear being the thing that makes the decision as to what I'll do next, I must honor it as honoring my separateness and still acknowledge this other part of me. And you just play at the edge until finally, like the snake shedding its skin, the fear just isn't enough to, to cut you off. And then you come in, and then as you come into the totality, you are still a separate entity, and that separate entity in itself still has fear. And that's what's fired. Like, I'm dealing with a woman who's dying of cancer of the pelvis some years back, and she's very uh, writhing in pain. Now, you walk into that room and you see a woman you love writhing in pain and it hurts your heart. 
and she's taking the medication she wants to be taking, and she's got a lot of love around her, and I can't really do much about it at that point. I can't take her pain away. So I'm sitting there meditating and pulling my awareness, watching her decaying body, watching my feelings to it, going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And I come into a space where it's all like a purple light in the whole room, and I'm just sitting there with the whole thing of her suffering and writhing on the bed, and it's all very peaceful and very beautiful and very loving. That moment she turns to me and she says, she said, I am feeling such peace, I wouldn't be anywhere else in the universe at this moment. And at the same moment she's saying that, her body's writhing in pain. See? The fear was still there. The, all the stuff was still there, but she wasn't busy so identified with it anymore. And that's the art form of just, instead of pushing against the fear, just cultivate the other part philosophically. And when you come near the fear, just sit and notice it. And don't try to push through it. Just play with it as it's a message. It's part of your incarnation saying it's not time for you to dissolve fully. There's no errors in the game. I would say that as you um, deepen your um, meditative quietness, you will begin to appreciate the depths of the sadness out of, and that being with the sadness is what the issue is. Whether you cry or not isn't the relevant issue. That to the extent that you don't find a breaking of identification with that which causes the sadness, you'll finish crying and then shortly thereafter you'll feel the sadness again. The sadness is the root cause. The suffering is just the symptom of it. So, sure, you'll feel much better when you cry, but it won't be, and, it, and it'll be a release for the person who said he couldn't cry. That'll be great, and that'll change you somewhat. But the, the, uh, the question you're asking is, how much do you have to act out stuff? And the interesting thing is the recognition of it, the recognition of anger is often enough. You don't have to hit the pillow. And that's a, I mean, I'm, I'm going into the teeth of a lot of psychotherapeutic uh, stuff that says, no, that isn't true. But that's, I'm talking from a spiritual point of view now, not from a psychodynamic point of view. Okay. Yes. Uh, he's talking about the attachment to the earth. I would point out just at the outset about the issue of the earth surviving. The earth will do fine. We might not. And living stuff on the earth may not, and civilizations may not, but the earth isn't going anywhere. I mean, the earth will do very fine. It'll be, it'll be probably a kind of a brownish colored planet from in its minor point in the minor galaxy for a couple of hundred thousand years, and then it'll probably start the whole game over and it won't even notice. So don't worry about the earth. The earth can take care of itself. You're worried about the games on the earth like life and species and, and, you know, stuff. And um, that is, uh, as I said before, that's a very destabilizing force in life. And it deals with your fear of death. It deals at some level with the fear of death or the fear of loss of something that's familiar, that's safe, that's comfortable, that's beautiful, that's precious. And 
as that fear manifests, there are a couple of things that happen. One is you can get so caught in that fear, you're busy reacting against it by trying to do something, but the way you're doing it from is so fearful, it keeps generating the fear in the whole situation that is one of the root causes of why the problem is happening in the first place, because a lot of greed is the result of fear, and greed leads to exploitation of resources and all that business. So the other way is to work on yourself, like the Isaac Stern example, work on yourself to become quiet. And then if indeed there is something about the situation that you have a part to play in, you would play it out of equanimity, but you play it still. You hear that? It's a really interesting one. Because I notice that a lot of, I speak at a lot of rallies and a lot of go to peace rallies and people are very angry. I think, isn't it funny to call it a peace rally and have everybody so angry, you know? And in a way, I had this incredible talk. I was doing a, a television interview. I was, being, I was interviewing John Seed, uh, who's an Australian um, deep ecologist who chains himself to trees and puts himself under trucks and so on to change the rainforest situation. And John said to me, I said, where are we in the whole situation? John says, well, basically, it's too late. He said, the inertia in the system is so great and the profundity of what we are doing to the earth is so great that probably, he said it, that it's too late. He didn't say probably, he said that it's too late. And I realized that I had never heard anybody say it's too late. <clears throat> they often said, if we don't do something about it, it'll be too late. But he was saying it's too late. And I sat with that and I felt this really kind of cold, great sadness in me that it was too late. And I said, you think it's too late, John? He said, well, he said, of course there could be a miracle. I said, yeah, that's right. It would take a miracle though, wouldn't it? He said, yeah, but you know, when you think about it, he said, we're the beings that came up out of the ocean. We were swimming. We came up on land. <clears throat> he said, that was pretty miraculous. He said, you know, we have a pretty good lineage. Don't underestimate us, you know. But I saw, I saw him hearing all that with the acceptance that it was too late. The interesting question is, would your social action to protect the earth be different if you decided it was too late? If, the, if you held too lateness, like Don Juan says, keep death over your left shoulder, does it make life less precious or more? Would you work more to bring about the miracle or to be part of the miracle, the hundredth monkey miracle or whatever? Could you do all that out of emptiness? I mean, I'm, I'm playing with a very profound stuff out of where social action comes from. And it really comes back to that statement, out of emptiness arises compassion. And that the quiet person hears what to do and does it impeccably. And if you are to be part of a miracle and you're quiet enough, you'll know just what part you're to play and you'll play it absolutely perfectly. How wholeness leads to compassion. Oh, yeah. Um, if I am uh, in my separateness and you are in pain... I can empathize with you 
I can say, gee, if I were in pain, it would feel such and such. And then I can act to help you because I know what it would feel like if I were in pain and I don't want you to feel that pain. Okay, that's, that's the usual thing. But now let's say I enter into the vibratory rate and awareness, the spacious awareness, where I exist behind form so that as it comes into form, I am you. I am no longer empathic with you, I am you. Now your suffering is my suffering. Now I act to take away your suffering, not because it's your suffering, but because it's my suffering. It's different, right? It's different. It's not a relational thing any longer. That's the difference. See, it's the universe writing itself. It's the same question as the one about the, the earth. It's the universe writing itself and you become part of it. And the quieter you become, the more you see you become part of that compassionate force in the universe. And there are all these forces taking it into divisiveness and fear that are fear-rooted into greed and into exploitive structures and all of that stuff. And what you find is that you just become the instrument of the healing of that process. Not through, I'm going to use my powers, but you are that power. How many of you have read the book, How Can I Help? Enough of you so that you remember the story, Terry Dobson's story of the man uh, in the Japanese train. And the story of the old Zen man sitting there who seemingly with just love and quietness took care of the drunken fellow and turned it into something else. He was just quiet. He didn't pit himself against something. Yes. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you. <laughs>